You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled How the Spiritual World Projects into Physical Existence, The Influence of the Dead. This is Lecture 7, given in Stockholm on the 10th of June, 1913. As you devote yourself to spiritual life, it will be necessary to be aware as to why we, the people of the present age, taking up our mission as people of the present age, have the longing and urge to cultivate spiritual life. The reason is that from the end of the last century, people can relate in a completely different way to the higher worlds than was the case in earlier centuries. This is not fully taken into account, that from age to age, human evolution yields ever new impulses In the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, it was relatively difficult for human souls to develop understanding for the spiritual world, for spiritual life. In the times ahead, it will be more and more of a natural need in the human soul to seek spiritual insight. For in a sense, the gates to the spiritual world have been open from the last third of the 19th century onward so that spiritual insight flows from the spiritual world for all who wish to receive it. In this sense, we are in a completely new phase in human evolution. People who are today drawn to anthroposophy, to the anthroposophical movement, as though by an instinct, simply have a feeling for the signs of the times. Fifty years ago, it would have been completely impossible for people to meet the way we are doing today to talk about spiritual secrets of existence. At that time, the waves of spiritual insight did not yet flow down to humanity. We have to understand that our aims and intentions in this respect are something that must grow more and more general. For this, we must for once Look for the symptoms that characterize the whole present-day development of humanity. At present, only a few people are interested in spiritual life and feel the urge to gain insight into the spiritual world. The masses are still vigorously rejecting any spiritual insight. We must know how to enter deeply into the causes of this situation in human evolution. Most important among the current ideas which show what has become symptomatic of the present age is perhaps the idea of freedom. It is the idea which can best illustrate for us the evolution over recent centuries. It is perfectly natural for people in the world today who are not seeking spiritual insight but who do want to be informed about the laws that govern the world and the inner life of human beings, to resort to official information, which in turn is governed by natural science. 
For how do people gain insight into the world? They turn to others, who have learned to gain natural scientific understanding of the world and have perhaps also produced popular science writings about how one should think about the human soul, about nature and freedom and so on. How could anyone arrive at any idea other than that you have to turn to those people? Official knowledge did, however, go through a very strange development in the 19th century, at the point where it sought to be a philosophy of life, and this is symptomatic. People completely failed to take note exactly of such extremely strange symptoms. If you ask one of the great men or women of science if there is such a thing as an idea of freedom, the answer will be, quote, it does not exist in the sense in which the idea was seen in the old philosophies of life, for we know today that when someone ingests some particular substance or another, for instance, this will immediately affect the brain, and he will then no longer be able to use his brain in the right way. One sees that human beings are dependent on their brains, so how can they be free? Close quote. Or, it will be, quote, In rationalistic psychology we show that someone who is suffering from a mental illness and is unable to talk or cannot recall speech sounds shows abnormalities in the brain. So how can one speak of freedom when human beings are dependent on their brains? Close quote. That is what people say in ordinary psychiatry. All these reasons carry a lot of weight in people's everyday thinking. They sound very plausible and gradually settle in people's minds and unless a spiritual philosophy of life puts their heads in order again, people will have a philosophy of life where the idea of freedom is wholly denied. Science has followed a strange course in this respect. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, people were always looking for design and purpose in the natural world. They would ask themselves, quote, Why does the bull have horns? Why do apples grow on apple trees? Close quote. The conclusion was that a wise providence had done this. It gave horns to the bull so that it might thrust and let apples grow so that people might eat them and so on. Enlightened minds of the 18th and 19th centuries made a lot of fun of those ideas about usefulness. Ironically, they'd say, quote, Why has world existence let this tree grow, or that one? Because people like to drink wine and need corks for their wine bottles, close quote. Such objections to an anthropomorphic view of nature are perfectly justifiable. With a person, we can always ask what their design and purpose is in doing the things they do. So nature had been made anthropomorphic, and an anthropomorphic view was taken of the world, asking after nature's aims, just as one asks about people's aims. It was perfectly justifiable for people of the 19th century to object to an anthropomorphism, where people did not see anything in nature as such, but had superimposed the human being on nature. 
nineteenth-century people wanted to study nature directly, asking nature herself. They did not want to impose design and purpose, the purpose known to man on nature. And they were right in this, for the old way of looking at things applied human soul life to nature. And it is justifiable to say that one wants to study nature the way it is, separate from the human being. People said, quote, We want to cast out from nature everything that belongs to man. Close quote. This led to an image of nature in the 19th century that had nothing in it of the human being. A materialistic science of nature developed. Human concepts were removed from nature. In a sense, it was the right kind of reaction to the old idea of usefulness, to teleology. A materialistic natural science thus arose, with the premise that nothing of the human being be found in it. At the time, it was perfectly justifiable, but in the second half of the nineteenth century, the idea came that the human being must be seen in the same way as nature is seen. This second demand to consider the human being according to the material situation in the natural world changed things completely. For the human being had been taken out of the natural world. It was perfectly clear then that the human being simply could not be found in a natural science of that kind. This evolved in the course of the nineteenth century. Everything belonging to the human soul had been distilled out of natural science, and this was much the same as saying, quote, I have here a bottle with water in it, but I want to have an empty bottle and therefore pour the water away, Close quote. And one is then surprised that there is no more water in the bottle. Everyone then notices immediately that the bottle is empty. With natural science, people did not realize how foolish it is to want to understand the human being by means of a nature from which the human being had been removed. I am convinced that a gathering of materialists would merely laugh about this simple way of looking at it, for people are not aware of this major error. It was the idea of freedom, of immortality and the like, which had to suffer most due to this misconception. For anyone who looks at it the way I have just described would find it perfectly natural and one cannot gain enlightenment concerning these terms from natural science. For a spiritual philosophy of life it is particularly important to win through to the realization that in their bodily nature human beings do indeed belong to the natural world outside and its laws but that they bear something in them as their soul, which can only be found by using the spiritual approach. In other words, if we want to perceive the human being in his very own essential nature, we must not look at the outward form human beings have between birth and death, but at the principle which continues from incarnation to incarnation and is his true essential nature. It will be the mission of anthroposophy to direct people's attention to aspects of inner life that prove to them that within the human being there is such an eternal core and essence 
which is independent of his bodily nature. If we admit, as we begin to consider the human being, that his essential nature lives not only between birth and death, but that it is something which places the human being in physical existence and also continues after death, we will see that it is necessary to take human knowledge and insight up into the regions where the essential human being has a part, thanks to his insight, in the higher world to which he belongs by being endowed with soul and spirit. But the moment human beings enter into the higher worlds with their insight, they meet there with the spirits of those higher worlds, just as here in the physical world they meet with the entities belonging to the three realms of nature. The most unjustifiable view was expressed on one occasion by Pascal, for instance, the well-known Christian philosopher, and has today been reaffirmed by Metterlink. For example, saying that Pascal had did want say it again, for example, saying that Pascal did want this once and for all. Pascal said that all that earthly existence really does for us is to hide eternity, infinity from us. One has to say that this is a widely accepted belief. Listen all around and you will everywhere find a justifiable longing for the spiritual, the eternal. And this is expressed by saying, quote, earthly existence is not at all satisfactory. Human beings truly gain real satisfaction only when they behold the eternal, close quote. Yet when one truly penetrates to the eternal worlds, something will be added to Pascal's words. For when you penetrate to eternity, you will find that it does not in the least hide earthly existence, but rather that it shows one that everything in that other world is designed to guide us once again to a further earthly existence. People often have the oddest objections to the theory of reincarnation. When I had given a lady all the reasons why reincarnation is necessary, she said, quote, I don't want to return to earth. I don't like the life very much. I tried to explain that her feelings were beside the point. She listened to what I had to say and then went home. She sent me a picture postcard from the next railway station. It said, I just don't want to be born again. We may laugh about such an attitude, but it is quite common. People don't realize that their attitude to this does not matter nor does anything they said here on earth during the present life. They don't know that it may be quite immaterial if one wants to come back or not. They don't know that between death and rebirth one has all the powers in one's soul that seek reincarnation and want to come back. These powers are indeed there. Over there everything is organized so that the powers which one develops there may be satisfied as one enters into life on earth again. One has a feeling that the soul did not achieve perfection, that it did not develop certain qualities in the last life on earth. Here on earth it may be all the same for one if one is perfect or not, but that is not so in the life between death and rebirth. 
There, irresistible forces compel one to transform imperfection into perfection. One realizes that in many cases this can only be achieved at the cost of pain and suffering. And one knows that to achieve perfection one must accept the pain and pleasures of a life on earth. And one then goes full steam into a new incarnation. I have told you this because such a thing makes us see very clearly that our philosophy of life must cover all angles and we must not draw conclusions as to the desires and interests one will have between death and rebirth from the way life between birth and death appears to us in our desires and interests. People will only learn to think in a thorough, energetic way when they use the spiritual philosophy of life and train themselves to be all-rounders in this way. When they come to realize that everything needs to be considered from different angles. Practical life does already force us to do so day by day. People are quite right when they say that fire is a great boon. Yet it is also true to say that fire causes great harm, burning down towns and villages. It is not possible to be absolute and say fire is good or fire is an evil. When it comes to fire, practical life teaches us to accept that there are two sides to it. Yet when we are asked to do the same with spirits of the higher worlds, Lucifer and Araman, for instance, we are reluctant to accept this. Instead, we tend to ask, quote, Is Lucifer a good or an evil spirit? Close quote. And, quote, Is Araman a good or an evil spirit? Close quote. People want to have definitions to answer those questions. And an answer like, quote, Lucifer and Araman may be both good and evil, close quote, is considered unsatisfactory. There is no such demand when it comes to fire. There, everyday life makes us change a wrong opinion into a right one. One of the many things currently circulating in Germany to attack us is that it was recently said, quote, in his public lectures, he, uh, meaning Dr. Steiner, presents things the way they appear from his point of view, but avoids giving definite ideas or opinions, close quote. Well, my friends, in a Greek school of philosophy, they once sought to gain a definite idea of what a human being is. Following long discussions, it was agreed to say that a human being walks on two legs and does not have feathers. The next day, someone brought along a plucked chicken and said, This then is a human being, for it has two legs and no feathers. According to our definition, it ought to be a human being. Close quote. The problem with, quote, definite ideas, close quote, is that when one looks more closely, they may prove to be very far from reality. Because of this, the spiritual view of life will particularly get people in the habit of considering things from all angles. A good bit of one-sided thinking has been produced in natural science, and even people of goodwill who seek to rise a bit above natural scientific thinking often show a naivete worthy of our admiration. This is a field where one must gradually develop the will to be really clear about things. Yesterday I tried to show how people 
whom we may call thorough natural scientists, and whose reputations shall not be blackened, are unable to form an opinion particularly in the field of spiritual scientific investigation. In the same way, we must not let ourselves be taken aback by an idea which is no doubt presented with the best intentions, but nevertheless won't stand up to scrutiny. An example would be the chemist and physicist William Crookes. He achieved significant things in scientific research and at the same time was fully committed to the study of immortality. He wanted to know of immortality for certain you for certain maybe that again he wanted to know of immortality for certain using normal scientific methods and achieved excellent results in his work with mediums. On one occasion he put forward an idea in such a way that up to a point one could go along with it. When someone says that our ability to see colors depends on the nature of our eyes and the ability to hear sounds on our ears, and if we had different sense organs the world around us would look very different, that is absolutely correct. And when he says, quote, why do you deny the existence of a supersensible world which also does not exist for you because you do not have the organs to perceive it? Close quote. That, too, is correct. He defined this idea more clearly, saying, quote, We perceive colors, we hear sounds, but in the case of electricity and magnetism, we only see the effects. These are natural forces, the nature of which is not known to us, though we do make use of them in everyday life. It is something we find everywhere, that people say these are natural forces which human beings have not fathomed. True enough. In reality, all this means is that people have their eyes for color, their ears for sound, and so on. In the case of magnetism, they do see that a magnet attracts iron, but they do not see magnetism itself, the actual nature of it. In the case of electricity, they perceive light and heat produced by it, but not the electricity itself. William Crookes says, quote, What would the world look like for someone endowed with special sense organs that allow them to perceive electricity and magnetism as such, but unable to perceive light, colors, sounds, and so on. If we were unable to perceive light, a crystal would be opaque to us, for example, and so would glass, and there would be no point in having windows. They would merely prevent us from relating to the outside world. If, on the other hand, we had organs for electric currents, a telegraph wire would appear as a line of light passing through the darkness. We would perceive the flow and light of electricity. With an organ for magnetism, we would be able to perceive magnets, letting magnetic forces radiate out in all directions, and so on. He also says, It is not beyond the bounds of possibility that there are entities with organs set for wavelengths that leave our organs untouched. Such entities live in a world different from our own. He then goes on to consider what this world would look like. Glass and crystal would be dark bodies in this world, metals 
a bit brighter because they conduct electricity with dark parts interspersed. A telegraph wire would be a long, narrow hole in a body of impenetrable solidity. A functioning dynamo would be similar to a major fire, and a magnet would actually fulfill the dream of medieval mystics of an eternal lamp that would never go out. William Crookes has explained it all very well, and the method serves to give people a notion of how senseless it is to say that this physical world, perceived through the senses, is the only one, that there is no other world apart from our own, and that there can be no other entities but human beings, all of it true. But we can also say something else about this idea, and this is where the other side of the matter begins, the one that concerns the true spiritual scientist. Let us consider asking the question, what would it be like if, instead of eyes, people really had these organs for direct perception of electricity and magnetism? If this idea put forward naively by someone were to be brought to realization for us human beings? We would then find our way about in the realm of electricity and magnetism, but not in the realm of light and sound but there would be a consequence. If people had an organ for the direct perception of electricity and magnetism, they would have not only this organ, which would be an organ of perception, but also the power to kill any other person or make them sick. Such an organ would directly confer that power. So this is what can be said about William Crookes's idea from the point of view of spiritual science. For we know that forces related to magnetic and electric forces are present in human beings here on earth. The question now has a very different meaning, and we really see the naivete of simply setting up such an idea. Someone who does not possess higher vision sets up the idea of looking into electrical and magnetic forces. But for the spiritual scientist, this leads directly to what has just been said. If we bring that to mind, we begin to see clearly that we must not stay on the surface, but truly seek to go deeply into the wisdom that lies behind the world order and understand it. For the spiritual scientist's insight shows that it is a very good thing for human beings not to have the electrical and magnetic organs, for in this way they will not be able to damage others with them. Their lower instincts and desires thus also cannot run free initially, causing disaster to them and to others. Human beings have a world around them which teaches them slowly, and gradually to conquer these lower powers and only then progress to higher powers. That is the whole point of earth evolution, that human beings go through numerous lives on earth and in the rich and varied billowing wave movements gradually move toward perfection, but in such a way that they learn to make their lower powers, instincts and longings serve higher ideas and issues. They would not be able to do this if at the time 
they first had to educate themselves to develop morality. They would not be able to do this if in the course of earth evolution they had developed organs that let them have direct perception of electricity and magnetism. If they had, the temptation would have been too great to kill people whom, for some reason or other, they did not like and allow only those who suited them to remain on earth. We see, therefore, that it needs the spiritual point of view to make it possible for us to consider earthly existence from all angles and enter into it more deeply. When someone truly becomes this kind of spiritual investigator, we were only able to touch on it briefly yesterday, they will truly enter into the spiritual world and find that there the higher hierarchies are around them, just as here the three realms of nature are around them. There we get to know spirits, which we call Luciferic and Aramonic. What kind of powers are the Luciferic spirits? They are spirits which during the previous embodiment of the earth in the old moon period lagged behind in their development and did not enter into the complete hardening of earthly existence into which humanity entered. They remained at a level that preceded human development of a material nature. This meant that their powers continued to be more spiritual than those of humanity. Their evolution only took them to a level that is more spiritual than the level at which human beings go through their incarnations on earth. As they have brought their powers into human nature, this human nature has more spirituality in it than it was really supposed to have. If it had not been for these luciferic powers, human beings would have personal spirituality in their unconscious powers, which are subordinate to the conscious powers of the capital I, powers like the luciferic ones, but not the powers which they do now have. Thanks to the luciferic powers, human beings have grown more spiritual in their lower nature than they would otherwise have been. They would have received everything they were meant to have on earth from the powers that are merely progressing, but they would not have been as spiritual as they are today. The luciferic element would be missing. There is also something else which human beings would not have. Without this luciferic element, humanity would not have known freedom, for without it they would have done everything in such a way that when there was something to be done, they could have looked only at the ideas coming to them from the spiritual world. Whatever they would be doing on earth, they would do in such a way that they would look to the idea behind it, like a picture that would show them what had to happen, and they would not need to create the idea for themselves. It would be like an inspiration from higher worlds, and this would be such a powerful influence that they could not possibly go against it. They would do the will of the gods, and it would be a matter of course. But then there was the Luciferic influence. This made it possible for human beings not simply to let the ideas for an action come to them from outside, 
Instead, they had to do their own work from the deepest depths of their souls to develop their own ideas. They have to train themselves to think ethically, and this is something human beings would not be able to do if it had not been for the Luciferic influence. This brought a more spiritual principle into our astral nature. The result is that not only the idea of morality, of ethics, is active in our eye-consciousness, its effect being that no one would think of doing anything evil for divine spirits would immediately put the idea of doing good things before the mind's eye, E-Y-E, but so are our drives and passions active. This idea could not arise at all in our eye-consciousness if our astral nature, given individual character thanks to the Luciferic influence, did not come to meet it. This Luciferic influence has brought it about that there has to be purification in our nature, proceeding from the unconscious to the conscious mind. And we must work to develop conscious ethical ideas and motivation as we struggle against ourselves, and then follow those ethical concepts of our own free will. It is Lucifer, therefore, who makes it possible for us to follow ethical ideas once we have developed them ourselves. Now, we might say that there must, after all, be a power that arises from within us when we work our way up to ethical ideas. Where is this power in the human being, seeing that the individual is not ethical to begin with and has to train himself to be? Where is the power that works from the unconscious in the soul so as to put ethical ideas before him? Where is it within us so that we may bring it out? Someone who, as a spiritual investigator, is able to look into the spiritual world will also discover where the power to produce ethical ideas is to be found. It is continually at work in the unconscious powers. It is there in the human being, but is used for quite a different purpose in the ordinary world. When we act in the ordinary world, doing so before we have set ethical goals for ourselves, we are acting under the influence of our drives, desires and instincts. Yet we are only able to act by making our body act. There we are, all the time working with unconscious powers. For who among those who have not been working with spiritual science knows which powers bend an arm, put one foot in front of the other, and so on? Without spiritual science we do not know what kind of powers these are that function in the human being. People do not know how their movements everything which makes it possible for them to take action in the physical world around them, how this comes about and what power brings it about. The spiritual investigator will only get to know this when he achieves imaginative insight, insight in images. You first of all create images for yourself. These take effect because they draw forth greater powers from the soul than those used in ordinary life. Whence comes this power which unfetters the images of imaginative inner life? 
It comes from the place where the powers are at work that make us able to take action in the world and let us move our hands and feet. This being the case, one will only achieve vision in images if one is able to be still, is able to bring the will of one's body to a standstill, to control it. One will then find that this power, which otherwise moves one's muscles, streams up into the sphere of soul and spirit and creates the images. One is repositioning these, those powers. Down there in the depths of the living body, something exists of our very own being, something of which we are quite unaware in ordinary life. When we cut out the bodily element, the spirit which otherwise comes to expression in our actions rises up into the soul, filling it with this spirit which it must otherwise use for the bodily element. The spiritual investigator knows that he must deprive the body of something that the body normally consumes. For insight in images, we must therefore cut out the bodily principle. In ordinary life we think, we form ideas, but in our organism the power to which we have been referring streams down into our organs when we are in waking consciousness, takes effect there, and as a rule is not at all used to being spiritually visible in the soul. If we are not spiritual investigators, we have no control of this power. We have to leave it down there in the subconscious. Yet it is doing something. It influences our moral or ethical ideas. When it streams upward consciously, we train ourselves to gain insight in images using this power. If it is not consciously used for this, it serves us as we take action in the world. People are not always active, doing things. Then this power which sits down there comes free, unconsciously, and is then also working to let ethical ideas arise. The very power, therefore, which moves our limbs, spiritually present in the living body so that people can take hold of things, walk, and so on, frees itself in the human body at times and then produces our ethical and moral ideals. When we are able to admire someone who thinks ethical thoughts somewhere, developing noble ideas in solitude, we see the same powers coming free in those ideals which are involved in the movement of his hands and so on. To develop ethical ideals, a person must first be at rest, as it were. We can, of course, also develop ethical ideals and then not follow them, for we also use the powers we used to develop those ideas to move around. They can be used for the one thing or the other. To develop ethical ideals does not yet mean to be ethical. You are only ethical in your actions if you follow those ideals. They then come up like memories. For as long as we must still train ourselves in them, we have to use the same energy to produce them as we later need to follow them. We have our ethical standards in us as remembered images. 
People must be trained to be ethical so that these images arise in them as their ethical standards and and they are able to follow them. Who is thus conjuring up these ethical ideals from our own nature within us? It is Lucifer. He compels us to produce our ethical ideas, our independent morality, out of our own resources. It is thanks to Lucifer that we have to do this. There is no freedom in the natural world. We find it only when we do bring to realization the element of spirit and soul within us. When Lucifer invaded the lower cravings of human beings, he not only led humanity astray, but also created human freedom. Lucifer's impulse made human beings free. So if we study the inmost nature of our physical body in the way in which scientists study the natural world, and if we follow the laws of logic, we arrive at this source and origin of human freedom. If someone were to say today, quote, I don't believe in magnetism, I merely see a piece of iron, and that cannot possibly attract another piece of iron, that's sheer fantasy, close quote. This goes against life as it is lived. Yet in the sphere of soul and spirit, people do behave in such a way that they deny the powers which exist. Luciferic powers are present in our freedom. Without them, we could not be free, could never develop ethical impulses from the depths of our souls and follow them. We shall only really understand freedom when we realize that man's physical sense-perceptible nature is imbued with an element of soul and spirit which does show itself in the movement of a hand, but can free itself, consciously so in the spiritual scientist's vision in images, unconsciously in ethical ideals we put before us. Looking to our inner nature, we also get to know Lucifer's good side and are then no longer able to say that Lucifer is an evil spirit for he is, at the same time, also the bringer of human freedom. Human beings also change other powers in their souls so that they perform physical tasks, an example being speech, setting the speech organ in the brain in motion. There it is not the whole body in action, but a matter of making the organization of the physical body perform actions doing so from the sphere of soul and spirit. We are involved in an inner activity. When we speak, powers of soul and spirit intervene in Broca's area, which is in the third gyrus convolution of the brain and then in the larynx. When we grow aware of this power which acts on Broca's area, withdrawing it from speaking activity, as it were, and not using it for speech, we will have grasped it in its aspect of soul and spirit. Let us assume, for instance, that you meditate in such a way that you enter into the powers in your soul that are otherwise evident in speech, but refrain from speech. You remain silent. If one thus stops the soul element within one, as it were, before it intervenes in the bodily sphere, One has grasped a power within one that leads to inspiration, to spiritual hearing. 
The occult term, quote, silent perception, close quote, refers to this. It means the kind of silence where the powers which otherwise flow to the larynx are used inwardly. They penetrate into the soul sphere, making the soul active within. This is how one enters into the world of inspiration. Basically, this world of inspiration is a world entered into by the spiritual scientist, which is separate from the world through which other spirits of the spiritual worlds make themselves known to us. In our cycle of time, the situation is that if from natural necessity powers are more and more coming into play, unconsciously also in human beings, which otherwise only come into their own in the organs of the physical body and their inner activities. When the power which people otherwise use in speech acts in them as though by nature, it enables them to perceive a spiritual principle and this is equivalent to inspiration. It is different from perceiving images with the I-E-Y-E of the true seer in image-based perception. This power, active in our ethical ideas, lets us see the good side of the Luciferic spirits. If we are able to perceive things with the power which otherwise is used in speech, we enter into the sphere which the Gospel of John helps us to understand rightly by saying, without any religious prejudice, quote, in the beginning was the Word, close quote. We hear this Word if we are able to mute our own Word, our own bodily nature, to such effect that we arrest the power which normally speaks through the larynx before it gets to the larynx, and thus allow it to be free. The obstacle responsible for the fact that human beings did not perceive the world word from the beginning was that they had to learn to talk. However, as evolution continues, speech will turn into something that is very strange indeed. Speech and language have changed greatly in the course of human evolution. If we go back to original levels of speech, human beings were still directly connected with their speech. Even today we find that country people are still much more alive and active in speech, close to it. Saying a word, they still feel that something like a reproduction of things they see around them is in that word. The more human evolution progresses, the more abstract does the word become, turning into a mere sign of what it is meant to express. Language is getting more and more inorganic, more and more arabesque-like, more and more alien to people. What is the reason for this? This process, in which language grows remote from the inner meaning of words, reveals the powers which in the past were used to develop speech and language. And this is because we shall soon have spiritual perception of the Christ Spirit exactly because the power to create speech and language is coming free. In earlier times, language was closely bound up with the human organism. Today it begins to become emancipated from it. 
This frees the power that creates speech and language, which will then be used to perceive the world word, the spiritual Christ. We have now been considering two sides of human nature, how human beings are, on the one hand, using the Luciferic power to develop their own ethical ideals, and on the other hand gain the power to perceive the Christ in the Spirit as the speech-generating power comes free, that is, thanks to something they share with the whole of humanity, since these powers come free within the whole of humanity. We come to the Christ impulse because we are members of the whole human race. To the same degree as language grows more and more abstract and the power of speech becomes emancipated from the organism in human nature, humanity is getting ready truly to perceive the Christ in the Spirit. That is the other side of the coin with human evolution. Having grown more free inwardly under the Luciferic influence, which made it possible for them to develop their own ethical ideas, human beings will gain the ability as though by a powerful outside influence to connect with the Christ. The Christ will come to humanity by pouring His very essence out over the whole of human evolution as the quintessence of ethical ideas. Once it is known to the whole of humanity in this way, the Christ Spirit will have something of the nature of moral principles. And there we come to something which shows that anthroposophy can rise to something that is able to combine the most sublime sense of truth with the noblest of moral principles. In my title, Philosophy of Spiritual Activity, Readers Aside, also known as Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path, End of Readers Aside, completed twenty years ago, I sought to show that genuine freedom exists in the human soul when people follow the ethical principles they have brought to conscious awareness. What is the nature of these ethical principles? They do not compel us. We follow them of our own free will. A principle is never ethical if it compels. Principles we follow under compulsion have come to us from the outside world. Ethical principles can be identified by the fact that we are also free not to follow them. We have to be free in accepting their value. People only profess adherence to ethical and moral principles in a truly ethical way when they seek them out and the principles are not imposed on them. That is the characteristic of ethical principles. When human beings perceive Him in the Spirit, the Christ will have in common with ethical principles that one can also deny Him, that He does not force anyone to recognize Him. The old gods influenced other powers in the human soul. They still took hold of human beings in parts where they had not yet reached conscious awareness. The Christ, however, will appear to human beings consciously in his spiritual nature to the degree to which the individual has gained freedom in his conscious mind and will have risen to the Christ. He will be there for all who want to perceive him, though none will be forced to give him recognition. 
He will come to human beings in such a way that they will be able to follow of their own free will. Just as an ethical principle does not compel human beings but leaves them free to follow or not, so it will also be with the Christ Spirit. Individual human beings must be fully aware of the value of this Christ Spirit if they are prepared to follow Him. Recognition given to the Christ Spirit will in future also be a free deed in the soul. This will be something of infinite significance that we may find our way to a truth which does not compel us to give recognition. We only give it recognition when we appreciate its full value. The idea of Christianity given to us in anthroposophy, that it is still to come in its true form, will indeed provide a truth for human beings, which in the most eminent sense is at the same time also a free truth. The following may be added, images which can then be more fully understood through meditation. One and the same word was used twice in human evolution first with the temptation in paradise, when Lucifer said to the human beings, quote, Then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. Close quote. That is Lucifer's impulse, given as an image. Lucifer poured spirituality into the lower nature of man, and at the same time made it possible for him to arrive at freedom through ethical principles and the same word was used a second time when the Christ himself said, quote, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. Close quote. The same word. We see that it is not only a matter of the meaning of a word, but also of who says it, of the way in which a word is said. We see the necessary connection between Lucifer's deed and the Christ's deed, given in the form of an image which is the way religious documents do it. Lucifer is the bringer of personal freedom for the individual. The Christ is the bearer of freedom for the whole human race, all of humanity on earth. Anthroposophy significantly teaches us that acknowledgement of the Christ spirit will take the form that people are free to recognize the Christ or not, just as they are free not to be ethical. The Christ is meant to be a truth the human soul is free to accept. All other truths belonging to the whole of humanity do compel us. But there are truths still resting in the world's keeping that relate specifically to the mystery on Golgotha. Giving them recognition must be a free deed for the human spirit. They will give this spirit nobility in that they are acknowledged in an act of free will. Free truth, concrete free truth, deeply influences the human spirit as it evolves on earth. We see how gaining truth in freedom is one of the fundamental laws of human evolution. We have seen that freedom could only enter into human evolution under the influence of Lucifer, and that initially human beings needed the help of this Luciferic impulse so that they might rise to the truth. We may, however, see it as an ideal for the future that we can develop to gain freedom and freely acknowledge truths in the way presented here. Much could be said about anthroposophy, 
but it is unlikely that there is anything more closely connected with our need for freedom than what I have just been saying about free truth, something which must speak in the most profound and noble way of our human destiny. We shall only feel what it means to be human on earth when we know the conscious ideal we have before us, the ideal of freedom and the truth, the truth which will create an external body for itself in that freedom. I had to talk to you about such ideas of freedom at the very time when we have gained our own liberation as anthroposophical society, released from bonds that had grown impossible, so that with these ideas we may sentiently give some indication of the kind of attitude one should altogether have in a society which makes such ideals the reason why we foregather. In conclusion, let me speak from my heart in telling you and all the friends who have come from elsewhere to be here with our Swedish friends will share my feelings. Let me read that again. In conclusion, let me speak from my heart in telling you and all the friends who have come from elsewhere to be here with our Swedish friends will share my feelings. How deeply satisfying it is, even more so as this event draws to its conclusion, that here in this country there is such profound, thoroughgoing understanding for the things I have been able to say and for our aims in establishing the Anthroposophical Society. Truly, I choose these final words, not to speak against something, but to serve in the right way our freely developed Anthroposophical ideal. May this society, which you have established amongst you, contribute much still by way of work and effort to the things we were able to discuss today in this lecture on inner freedom perceived with anthroposophical insight. Let us hope that with this work the element will stream down that has existed for a long time in the spiritual worlds, waiting and hoping. And I am sure this will be so for us human beings if our work achieves things that will be so tremendously important for the development of humanity's spiritual endeavor. May this indeed be the work of this particular branch, and let these words be my farewell to you. The end of Lecture 7